0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
2: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And
0: I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with another part of our exploration of the invention of the motion picture. So as we were discussing in the previous episode, so I think one of the things we've, we've been trying to lay the groundwork for is that the idea of the motion picture, like the movies we watch today, was not one of these inventions that just like comes out of nowhere, you right. know, the eureka moment that strikes some brilliant inventor's brain. The motion picture very much grew out of several streams of existing technology, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's not just one individual has this this dream of motion pictures and then develops it, invents it, and then and, and unveils the motion picture uh, for a hungry for the hungry masses to view. Right. Uh,
0: and it's something also that I think people's taste for, in a way, had to develop over time. And I think we can explore that more as the episodes go on. But right. uh, where we're starting today, I think there are three major streams of technology that are feeding into the development of the motion picture. So one is something we talked about last time that we might call animation devices, mm-hmm. like the finakista or the finakista scope, it's been called both, or the zoetrope. These were toys that created an illusion of continuous motion by rolling through a succession of still images uh, that took advantage of loopholes in the way that our eyes and our brains perceive images, known as apparent movement. Basically, it was an optical illusion that allowed a bunch of still images to appear to us as something that is moving.
1: Right. And these were devices that grew uh, out of the age of photography, so these were not ancient by any, or or really any older than photographic technology.
0: Right. But these early animation devices were mostly known for animating, like, drawings or silhouette cutouts. Right. But an interesting question you, you might have wondered about at the time, say it's the 1870s or the 1880s or so, you might begin to wonder if you could combine the optical principles here in, the, in these animation devices of apparent movement generated by looking at successive still images really fast with another technology in development, which of course is photography. So to replace these hand-drawn or hand-cut still images with direct records of scenes in reality. Exactly. And then finally, another technology that we've explored a lot less so far but will become really important in today's episode that feeds into the history of the motion picture is something that's known as the magic lantern. And that's an invention that had existed for centuries uh, by the time the motion picture was invented. But essentially, you can think of it as kind of an early version of the slide projector. You ever like go over, you know, back in the day, you go over to somebody's house and they want to show you pictures of their vacation and they go through the slide projector, it shows them up on a screen or up on the wall.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I fondly remember my family's own slide projector. I was never really allowed to mess with it too Uh much. Uh, and, and maybe that's why it was so fascinating.
0: And then you broke it?
1: No, I never, never, never got the
0: chance. Oh, OK. <laughs> I guess some some schools use these too occasionally.
1: Yeah, I definitely remember projectors, slide projectors coming up in, uh, in classroom environments as well. Yeah,
0: but basically it combines a transparent plate on which an image is drawn or otherwise captured uh, and a lens and a light source that shines through the plate that has the image on it and through the lens projecting the image on a surface or, or screen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I should also add that, of course, you have, you have other old uh, uh, performance uh, methods that involved uh, you know, shadow puppets. Yes, which, exactly. Uh, which would have also been a projection-based uh, medium.
0: Well, that's a really great point. I mean, one way to create a very crude version of a motion picture would be to use a magic lantern to project images and then actually just move the plate or elements within the plate around, kind of like you would move your hands in a shadow puppet show. You know, like if you're projecting through a glass plate and you've got Mm -hmm. things on the plate, you could kind of have them dance around and fight each other and all that kind of stuff. But obviously, you'd be fairly limited in what you could do
1: with that. So all three of these are not motion motion pictures, and yet they all kind of converge into the idea of the motion picture.
0: Right. If you combine these three principles, you've pretty much got the earliest makings of a live-action movie, but we're not there yet. Uh, A sort of early combination of these three elements was another device that we mentioned in the last episode, the zoopraxiscope, which was invented by Edward Muybridge, the photographer and inventor, around the end of the 1870s. So you remember we talked about uh, Edward Muybridge in the last episode where he didn't just use one camera, but he would use a battery of cameras to capture a bunch of images really fast.
1: Absolutely yes. Uh, as the, as a horse ran by, uh, this battery of ca- of cameras would go off, uh, resulting in this, this 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 series of images. To portray uh, the locomotion of the horse
0: right so if he wanted to like show off those images in a way that wasn't just like you know sh- looking at them one at a time he he could sort of animate them together and that's what the zoopraxiscope was for. Uh, he used a very complicated process to sort of treat and re-render the silhouettes of all those still images taken really fast by a battery of cameras and then it would put he would put them around the edge of a glass disc in sequence which could then be rotated in front of a projected light source, showing off the sort of realism of movement captured frame by frame. Uh, But of course, even if you look at this, this is sort of the principle of the motion picture, but I think most people wouldn't think that it was a movie just yet.
1: Now, at this point in the story, we have to uh, reintroduce a character who has already shown up on invention in the past. I believe uh, he made an appearance in our X-ray episode.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, He he shows up a lot in the, especially like the second half of the 1900s. If you're dealing with inventions, whether or not he necessarily deserves all the credit for
1: some breakthrough, he may show up in the story. Right. And you, yeah, you can't remove him from the story. He was a major player.
0: Right. So this is where Thomas Edison enters the picture. Uh, So you may have heard that the prolific inventor and businessman Thomas Alva Edison invented the motion picture. And I think if that is what you believe, you are sort of unwittingly a part of Thomas Edison's (laughs) diabolical plan. Uh, Though he did play a very important role in the early development of the motion picture. I don't want to – Play that game. A lot of people really love to sort of over demonize Thomas Edison. Right. Uh, I think there are some very valid critiques of the man historically, but you know, a, a lot of people just like to they go the Tesla versus Edison route right. and like Tesla is the hero and Edison's the villain. But I do think it's basically true that a lot of what Thomas Edison did was come up with or catch wind of innovative technological concepts that are sort of on the edge of discovery and then hire other people to do the heavy lifting of designing these things. So then Edison could reap much of the profit and the credit himself. And one of these assistants that Edison hired who who worked for Edison was a guy named William Kennedy Laurie Dixon, also known uh, often in books referenced as WKL Dixon. And Dixon was a photographer and this may have been part of the reason that in June 1889, Edison selected him to actually design a device that Edison had kind of conceptualized, which he was calling the kinetoscope, of course, from kineto meaning movement and scope meaning like to see or to watch. But you might wonder, where did Edison get this idea from? Well, we can't know for sure all of what Edison had in mind before this, though I think there's some indication he may have already been interested in the idea of moving images. But one thing we do know that I was reading about is that in 1888, Edward Mybridge hmm. visited Edison's laboratory in New Jersey. Apparently, Mybridge was there to suggest a partnership. Uh, see, Edison and his lab workers had recently invented a device, or not not quite so recently, it was It was around 1877. I think it was patented in 1878 called the Phonograph. And the Phonograph was huge. It was a big breakthrough. It was a sound recording and playback device that was immensely popular. It would later evolve into the record player, though the original uh, uh, phonograph both recorded and played back cylinders, not discs.
1: You know, if I remember correctly, uh, these uh, pop up in Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. (laughs) Really? Yeah, some of the, you know, it's all little bits, tidbits from various people's journals and diaries, and in some cases, uh, their cylinder recordings. Oh, uh, Dr. Seward, does he do dictation on phonograph cylinders? You see, I, I don't remember exactly which characters. I know it's not Dracula. There's no <laughs> cylinder recordings of Dracula.
0: And there are no chapters from Dracula's right. perspective. Right. Yeah, they were uh, all cut. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so Edison and his people, they, they had the phonograph, and that was this very popular revolutionary technology could record and play back sound. And so in February of 1888, Mybridge showed up with an idea. He said, Hey, let's collaborate. I'll pair your phonograph with my zoopraxiscope and we'll have sound accompanying moving pictures. Which is perfect. Like, that's exactly the direction things were going to go in. Uh, Edison passed. <laughs> he was like, Not interested. But then pretty much immediately, Edison moved on the idea of creating an improved motion picture capture and playback device, quote, to do for the eye what the phonograph does for the ear. And this would be the kinetoscope that we mentioned a moment ago. So I don't think you can say that Edison was stealing Mybridge's idea because what they would eventually come up with was so much better and more practical than the zoopraxiscope. But – it does seem right that he thought, you know, instead of partnering with this guy, I can just make a much better version of his thing. Uh, whether that's crooked or not, I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that up to you to judge. So in 1889, Edison tasks uh, William Dixon, his, his worker, uh, W.K.L. Dixon, with inventing this device that he has conceptualized to do for the eye what the phonograph did for the ear, essentially a video recording and playback device. And apparently, early prototypes did not work very well. One idea seemed to be inspired by the phonograph cylinder, uh, and it was the idea that you would place tiny reflective photos on a cylinder that would simulate motion through reflected light as the cylinder spun. You can kind of just like picture that not working very well. So you might wonder, okay, how do we solve these problems? Well. In the last episode, we talked about the French physiologist Etienne Jules moret who in the 1870s invented this device that uh, was called the chronophotographic gun, or at least yes. that's what we called it, mm-hmm. uh, the, the chronophotograph. Uh, and it was like this scientific instrument. It's kind of like a machine gun for taking pictures. Its goal was to rapidly capture a lot of photographs very quickly, around 12 photos per second, on a rotating piece of glass on which photographic emulsions had been prepared inside a drum that makes it look kind of like a mutated Tommy gun.
1: Yeah, it's super weird. It's like a wizard's machine gun is what it looks like.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so so it's a precursor of the movie camera in a way, but it also straight up looks like a rifle. And Murray was inspired by uh, Edward Muybridge's work, and he used the chronophotographic gun to take lots of pictures really fast of, like, birds in flight to get a better idea of what's happening with the movements of a bird's wing and body during flight, which normally happens too fast for us to see. It's just a blur. So, Murray was very much in the in the spirit of science. He was oh, not yes. trying to create an entertainment device. He was trying to study nature.
1: Yeah, study the the locomotion of birds, in this case. So, in a way,
0: Murray's gun was a step in the right direction toward motion pictures, but because it, it had some limitations, it either variously relied on either uh, plate glass exposures or relatively fragile paper film. There's no way you could use it to record more than a very short period of motion, maybe like a second or two. Uh, and you couldn't effectively load and have ready enough of the medium it recorded the images on to make it you know, something that could record for extended periods of time. But it seems Edison did draw some inspiration from Murray uh, in principle.
1: And this is where another uh, uh, individual from a past episode pops up, uh, an individual who played an important role in the the development of photographic technology, uh, George Eastman. That's right.
0: So Eastman played an important role uh with uh, helping come up with the medium so Eastman of Eastman Kodak of course who we discussed previously uh, had created paper film rolls that did not require glass plates uh, and this is this is an important step in in thinking about the media on which photographs are recorded because just think about if you had to create a movie camera that's capturing, I don't know, say you're trying to capture 40 frames per second or even if you're going low and just trying to do like 16 frames per second or something. And you want to do that all on like glass plates. How do you do that? You'd use like glass glass plates framed with wood that are on like a belt chained together <laughs> to go past the camera to get exposed uh, how many times per second. You, you can imagine how the medium there makes the camera setup really unwieldy and, and it, to a certain extent impossible to record more than a few seconds at a time, right?
1: Yeah, you're coming up against the hard limits of the uh, of the material there. I, I would love to see one of these though. I'm sure there's a great version of like
0: a steampunk video game or something <laughs> that has like just like giant drums of glass plate belts rattling through as the camera is yes. shooting on them. Uh, so one thing Eastman had created by 1888 was paper film rolls that didn't require glass plates. Uh, this wasn't the first paper film, but this was a version of paper film. Uh, and, and this is an improvement because you can imagine at least, OK, paper can be like rolled up in great quantities that you could feed through a camera if you needed to shoot tons of photos in quick succession.
1: Right. It, it begins to, to, to make it possible to really uh, uh, capture footage of uh, of of the world in action. Yeah, but
0: this paper film was relatively fragile, flimsy, difficult to work with. It just wasn't very good. Uh, meanwhile, a year before, in 1887, an American Episcopalian rector named Hannibal Goodwin, who lived in Newark, New Jersey, came up with a different idea. It was an idea for uh, a medium for photographic exposures, and that would be celluloid. Now, celluloid is a transparent kind of synthetic plastic invented in the 1860s. And to, to make it, you can start with natural cellulose, which is a plant polymer that you'd find in cotton or wood or in hemp. Uh, cotton is like mostly cellulose. So you can just picture a ball of cotton. And then you take that cellulose and you treat it with nitric acid and this gives you an extremely flammable plastic compound called nitrocellulose. And nitrocellulose and celluloid become the early basis of film technology, creating these continuous strips of plastic that could serve as film rolls – uh, and originally though, it's funny reading about how celluloid plastic in the like 1860s, 70s, the, it served all kinds of weird uses or at least people imagined it would like as a substitute for expensive precious materials like ivory huh. uh, or it was also used in clothing. Huh. I've I read something about like men's shirts and stuff being having celluloid, celluloid, <laughs> celluloid huh? components. Another one was – I read about somebody's idea to use celluloid to make billiard balls.
1: Weird, huh?
0: Um, But eventually, Eastman and collaborators would switch over to producing rolls of celluloid-based film, and this could be manufactured in the kinds of long, durable rolls necessary for exposing the dozens or hundreds or thousands of shots necessary to record more than a second or two of motion picture, Uh, though Eastman did have a long-running patent dispute with Hannibal Goodwin and his estate about celluloid film. They had to go back and forth about who had the rights to— do what with it. But once this durable plastic film, celluloid film, was available in bulk from Eastman, William Dixon and Edison and colleagues suddenly had new kinds of options open to them, like this would allow you to do a lot more with filming the world.
1: And boy, did they ever film the world. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of the history of the motion picture. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. All right, we're back.
0: All right, so I I guess we should discuss some design issues with uh, the movie camera that William Dixon in Edison's lab was trying to create. Uh, One problem would be this. Do you ever think about the, like, How does a movie camera simulate motion? In the last episode, we talked about how it has to simulate motion by showing you still images in a very rapid succession. This is the way that the optical illusion works. Uh, And it doesn't work to take, say, a few hundred photos in succession and then roll them past your eyes in one smooth motion, right? Because what would you see there?
1: Just a blur. Right. That won't cut it.
0: Right. I mean, that's not showing you a succession of still images. That's just showing you images that are moving top to bottom or moving side to side too mm-hmm. fast for you to look at them. So instead, what you have to do is find a way to project lots of distinct, unmoving images very rapidly one after another. So how to do that? Well, if you've ever – think about what celluloid film roles look like, especially movie film. You know those holes in the sides of the film strip? Well, that's where – they come in. Uh, These holes allowed their devices to rapidly grab the film strip with a fast-moving lever that had teeth to fit the holes, advance exactly one frame, project that frame through the shutter without moving it, and then close the shutter and advance the next frame.
1: So you're hitting one with here's the image, and then here's the new image, here's the here's the next image. Yeah, again, not just running it through like it's the the like the belt on an engine,
0: right? But dozens of frames per second, and it has to stop on each one. So in August 1891, Edison filed for a patent on two separate machines, the kinetograph, which was the movie camera, and the kinetoscope, which was the movie playback device. And these were two separate things. So the the kinetograph camera was this gigantic, monstrous electrical device for shooting films. It weighed like a 1,000 pounds or something. It was huge. Uh, it, It used components modeled on the internal workings of a clock to ensure the regular stop and start motion of advancing the film and stopping it one frame at a time and to synchronize the opening of the shutter with the placement of the next frame. And this device initially filmed at a rate of about 40 frames per second. Meanwhile, the kinetoscope was a large wooden cabinet about four feet high that held a film strip inside. And this was the dedicated playback device for films made on the kinetograph. The viewer would look through a lens at the top of the cabinet, kind of like the eyepiece for a viewmaster. Did you Mm -hmm. ever have one of those when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, A stereo view, yeah. Yeah, so it's not really a screen. It's like binoculars that, you know, you put your eyes in and you look down into the machine. And inside the machine, the film hung from rollers. And during playback, it would be advanced rapidly one frame at a time by an electrically powered sprocket with an electric lamp shining up through each frame into the viewing lens, which allowed you to see the motion picture projected into your eyes.
1: Right and now this, this is impressive like, don't get me wrong but but obviously the limitations are apparent like this is a device that can be used by one person at a time it is a a, a large cabinet uh it's more like a a peep show as opposed to what you might think of as a as movie viewing, certainly as a communal experience.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, can you imagine a world where everybody was just walking around staring into their own individual (laughs) devices to watch video and weren't interacting with each other? Yes, Uh, yes. (laughs) Well, this is a
1: great point because the the history of of, of motion picture technology, cinematic technology, the ability to watch the moving image, uh, it— it's kind of you see these different trends like the like like something will be individual and then it will go communal and then there'll Uh be new ways to make it more individual again yeah and uh, generally with the we see it both ways like here the advancements would make movie viewing more communal yeah and then later on it would be in the different direction let's take let's take this thing that is that has to be communal and let's let you do it in the privacy of your own home um and and I imagine you know there 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 are pros and cons with with both with both directions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was a very different viewing
0: experience even than looking at a video on your phone. Right. Uh, it, it was just extremely different because number one. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about where these kinetoscopes were deployed, but they would be out in public, semi-public places, you know, and you could go use one. And while the kinetoscope parlor might be a happenin' hangout, when you view the movie, you're viewing it alone with your face attached to a box. That's not like going to a movie theater, like you're saying. It's right. It's a completely different kind of culture around how these things are viewed. But also, the films had to be very different then because of the technical, physical limitations on the film strips, on the kinetograph, and on the kinetoscope, the way they were built, you could only accommodate about 50 feet or about 14 meters of celluloid film at a time and then play it back. So this severely limits the length that the film can be. It makes it, you know, it can be maybe 15 seconds or so. So let's say you saunter up to a kinetoscope, you mm-hmm. know, you go, you go to the local kinetoscope parlor and you're going to have a look-see into one of these things. What did you watch in there? Well, Edison essentially had to become not just a, an inventor but a, a media mogul, like a film right. producer because nobody else was making films to go in this thing. He had to make the content to go in the device. So he founded a movie studio in West Orange, New Jersey uh, to record the, the first real commercial motion pictures. And these movies tended to be like short spectacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, due to the limitations on the technology, they, they couldn't be more than you know 15 seconds or so. And they didn't have dedicated sound because even though Edison was into pairing this thing with the phonograph, they couldn't yet figure out how to synchronize the movie and the sound right. And at the time, there wasn't really a practice of film editing, which meant that the You know, the the convention was that the film would be shot in one take. So what ended up on these early films were things that were brief and kind of interesting to look at and could be done all at once in one take. Many of them were like quick vaudeville acts featuring slapstick comedy or circus performances like, you know, a ballerina's dancing or people doing trapeze acts or a strong man lifting something.
1: Right. I mean basically the technology allowed you to capture motion – And so you just had to go out and find interesting examples of motion. A person doing this, an animal doing this, a machine doing this.
0: Now, that might sound boring to us, but these things – people were very interested in seeing this. Like this was a hot technology. People were into it.
1: Yeah. Like I mean I can imagine – you know, we can talk about how it's not a communal thing to watch it. But, you know, you might go with somebody to see this. You would each have your turn looking into the machine, uh, witnessing the motion, and then you would inevitably talk about it. Did you see that? Was yeah. that not amazing? You just, you looked in it and and there it was brought to life.
0: Yeah. And so in the 1890s, kinetoscopes, the viewing machines were bought and put anywhere, I would say, you might normally see some kind of cabinet attraction or game machine. So uh, amusement parks, the lobbies of public buildings, stuff like that. Uh, dedicated kinetoscope parlors also became popular starting in New York City, they were sort of like a video arcade where people would go and line up at cabinets not to play Street Fighter but to look through the peephole and watch the films inside the boxes. I am trying to imagine what it would what, – what it would have been like to be in one of these uh, kinetoscope parlors because you'd have – it was like a public setting
1: mm-hmm. –
0: But you would be frequently while you were there like going into this other world for 15 seconds or so where you would lose your body and you disappear into the machine and the machine is your awareness. But everybody could see you. So you're just standing there with your face in this cabinet and like you – I don't know. It's this this weird public-private kind of thing.
1: I know exactly what it would be like. I remember when, uh, when we went to New York City and we went to um, a premiere of One Strange Rock (laughs) and they had these helmets and you put the helmet on (laughs) and you would um, it was like part of the marketing thing yeah the Um, Daft Punk helmets yeah yeah, it was like this Daft Punk like really cool helmets very well designed Mm -hmm. you put them on and you would get to see and hear in this case um, like essentially a trailer for the show and it it
0: was was pretty impressive projecting it inside a screen on the inside of the helmet so you're just sitting there in a room full of people having cocktails and wandering around and you've got a helmet on and you're like like, oh, uh, drooling. Well, yeah. So I imagine that's kind of what this was like. You okay. Know? Well, that was uh, – I'm not saying I didn't appreciate the experience. It was a little awkward standing there in a room full of people with your own consciousness engaged inside a device. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But then when you put the device on, it's pretty cool. And likewise, (laughs) the Kinetoscope would have had the the similar experience. Again, it's just – I imagine a lot of people standing around talking about it like, man, what was it like when you looked into it? Uh, Did Mm -hmm. you see that horse running? Did you see that – you know, whatever the the particular uh, uh, bit of motion that was captured, Uh, whatever it was, like people would just be geeking out over
0: it. Yeah, and uh, so what did Edison think about the potential of this this thing? I mean obviously people were excited about it. Mm -hmm. You get kind of mixed feelings reading about this that in some ways it seems like he didn't at first seem to fully realize the potential of films as their own extended medium. He obviously failed to make some certain leaps from the kinetoscope and the kinetograph immediately.
1: Right. Like it's easy to imagine, I'm guessing, where you're thinking like, okay, I've created an entertaining uh, sideshow. Yeah. A machine of for amusement, and I can see them continuing to be a successful thing. Like maybe you, it's it's like a pinball machine. Exactly, like there's yeah. the one in the front of a pizza joint. Yes, yeah, and maybe if you're like really savvy, you might see the future nefarious uses of essentially peep show machines. Uh-huh. But for the most part, like you're not seeing, imagining the Academy Awards.
0: But then, at the same time, I mean Edison he says like some grandiose stuff about it there this was later, I think this was in like uh in the nineteen teens or something, mm-hmm. but uh i I found a quote where he once remarked. I am spending more than my income getting up a set of 6,000 films to teach the 19 million students in the schools of the United States to do away entirely with books. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> yeah. Edison,
1: step back, friend. Well, I mean, clearly he, was, he, he had doubled down on that point and said, no, not only is this an important technology, it's the important technology. It's yeah. going to erase the written word from our schools. <laughs>
0: Uh, now, Edison, Dixon and and the people we've mentioned so far definitely were not the only people to serve in the creation of motion pictures around the, you know, the 1880s. This was in the air and other people were sort of working on this. It does seem that Dixon and Edison got there first with commercially viable patented machines, But it seems that a French inventor named Louis Le Prince got there before Edison's lab to make a movie camera that worked, uh, though he never got to capitalize on his work. Uh, Le Le Prince invented a motion picture camera. He shot several films in England around the year 1888, and he'd been planning to show off his invention in the United States in the year 1890, but then something very strange happened. Uh, Mysteriously, he disappeared before he had a chance to show off his invention. And we're actually going to devote an entire episode to this subject to explore this mystery in an episode uh, where we'll be joined next time by our friend Scott Benjamin.
1: But the short version is that that Edison is the name that remains important here.
0: Yes. Certainly
1: is getting the credit. uh,
0: Though I think more... Recent historians would probably say it looks like Dixon did more of the work. And, of course, Edison just sort of like owned his work and was his boss and then got the credit for it.
1: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to discuss another pair of individuals uh, who are exceedingly important in the development of motion picture technology. We're going to talk about the Lumiere brothers.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay
1: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Navy federal credit union and Navy federal. It's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years and not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy federal credit union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your
2: finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy federal credit union. Our members are the mission savings products insured by NCUA investment products are not insured, not obligations
0: of Navy federal and may lose value.
1: All right, we're back. So Robert, tell me about the Lumiere brothers. All right. Well, uh, just like it sounds, there are two of them. They're brothers. (laughs) There's uh, Augusta Lumiere and uh, Louis Lumiere. Um, uh, the, uh, August lived uh, 1862 through 1954, and uh, Louis uh, lived 1864 through 1948. Okay. So they were the French sons of the painter-turned-photographer uh, Antoine Lumière. Uh, so uh, you know, they would, basically they were both born into the photographic world, mm. uh, and they both had an aptitude for science. Uh, at the age of 18, with his father's help, uh, Louis opened a factory for photographic plates, and it was quite successful um and uh, so you know this becomes you know this is the family business at this point meanwhile uh, their father um uh, he attends a-, a showing of Edison's kinetoscope in paris and was really impressed by it. So he comes back and he tells his sons about it and they begin to work on the problem of animating projections.
0: Projections. Okay. So now remember the kinetoscope we were just talking about is a cabinet where you have a private experience with a moving picture. Right. It's a cabinet that might be at a, in a parlor or a business somewhere and you go and you stick your face in it and you can watch a 15 second movie of, uh, you know, a circus
1: act or a vaudeville show. Right. Yes. It's, it's, like, it's like going uh, to a gathering, and someone is showing something on a like a tiny iPhone screen. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> you get to look at it one at a time. Right. Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, but th- so the, the the brothers here, they they questioned, you know, what else was possible? What could we do with projection? So they created a camera, uh, this cinematographe, uh, that could photograph and project project at sixteen frames per second. And it had a number of advantages over Edison's invention. It was far lighter.
0: Oh yeah, Edison's. Now remember the the uh, the
1: kinematic graph, the camera they used. That was mm-hmm. like a. It was gigantic. It was like a yeah. thousand pounds or something. Yeah, this was lighter. It was more portable. Um, and uh, and then when you were actually uh, projecting the resulting uh, footage, it moved at a slower speed as well, creating a more fluid mov- movement. It was also far less noisy because that was another thing about the kinetograph is that it was uh, it was noisy. Another key improvement, though, is that more than one person could watch the film at a time. Seems like a big deal. (laughs) Yeah. To quote uh, Caroline Slade in her 2012 Telegraph article about the brothers, uh, quote, The Lumiere's cinematography not only created the filmmaker, it created the viewer. That's interesting. Because, again, there's
0: no – I mean, when you you create media, Mm -hmm. you create it for an audience – And when there was previously no wide audience for a certain kind of media, you have to make that audience somehow. You have to, like, teach them how to receive what you're producing.
1: Yeah. And kind of like what I said earlier, cinema was for the longest time and in large part still is about communal viewing. I mean, technology has introduced different waves of private viewing over the years, you know, be it – Uh, you know, TV broadcasts or VHS tapes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's it's impacted the medium and the way we engage with it, but we still place a high priority on communal viewing. We may not like the people that sometimes we have to watch (laughs) a film with if they're like too noisy or they, you know, they eat their popcorn too loud. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think by and large, if we want to share the viewing experience with someone, Yes. I mean, it's it's like the experience of going to a play, except, right. of course, it's
0: a movie. I mean, being an audience is a communal experience and there is it can be moving at times. Like, when you go see a big new movie that's really good and the audience is excited about it and they're cheering and they're clapping, that's part of the experience, too. Right? It's not just like, you know, you're there with the movie and there happen to be other people around you. I mean, all movies today could be released direct-to-video. There's no reason that they, that they couldn't be, except that they're apparently just is still desire for people to go to movie theaters.
1: Right. And I think about that a lot because I'm often the, the person who's like, oh, I have to wait for this Avengers movie to show up on an airplane. Can't <laughs> I just watch it, watch it now? You know, why I don't want to go to a theater and spend three hours there. Uh, and and so, sometimes if I'm more, um, you know, uh, uh, if I'm grumpier about it, I'll think, oh, it's just the, nobody actually wants to go to a theater. This is just the theater industry. But But no, I think people do. I mean, we do want to go see Films we care about uh, in a theater. There's something about the theater experience, especially, and at least there's something about the communal viewing experience, especially if something is supposed to be funny.
0: Yes, that that is huge. The laughter, or I think, actually, also. Um, it's important with horror movies. Yeah, Horror movies, the the audience plays a role there too, and it might actually have to do with laughter. I mean, if if you see a horror movie in the theater, uh, you will encounter sometimes as much laughter as you do when you're seeing a good comedy, either because the horror movie is bad, as it often is, and it becomes very funny, or because it's very good and there's a constant kind of low-level nervous release going on whenever tension is alleviated somehow in the film. Yeah.
1: Christian and I did a, an entire episode of stuff to blow your mind about that uh, a few years back so you can people can look for that at stufftoblowyourmind.com Uh so let's let's get back to um the French brothers here Okay uh, and the, the t- and uh, essentially they were in the same boat as as Edison Yeah uh, like you create this technology now you got to create some films I um, don't know
0: what I'm sorry I just realized I'm picturing both of them as the candlestick
1: from beauty and the beast <laughs> That no. was his name right <laughs> Was it? Was it Lumiere? He was Lumiere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that was that must have been their 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 reference there. But no, they were. They both looked more like Cogsworth. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So their initial experiments, for the most part, involved simple captures of daily French life. Um, like, for instance, we look at the ten short films that they initially uh, unveiled. Uh, they were all less than fifty seconds each, and most featured scenes such as workers leaving the Lumiere factory. Um, which is just you see you know, a bunch of Frenchmen uh, like walking out of a factory, and it's you know given g- given the, the state of the technology at the time, it's impressive, right? Uh, there's also Baby's Breakfast, which is a a, a pair of uh, like a mom and a dad presumably feeding a baby. Okay, and uh, yeah, it's it's impressive. But then uh, the, the crazy thing we talked about the importance of comedy. Uh, one of the films is The Gardener or The Sprinkler Sprinkled. <laughs> And this is a 49-second film of uh, uh, in which a gardener is, uh, like, spraying a garden. Mm-hmm. And then a kid comes behind him and stands on the hose. And then the gardener's like, what? Why'd the water stop? And, of course, he does the the comedic thing. He looks at the hose, like, stares down the barrel of the hose. Then the kid jumps off the hose, and the gardener gets squirted in the face. And so— <laughs> That's good. That's really good. But it's clearly done for comedic effect. It uh-huh. is—you know, it's— You could compare it, I guess, to like um, Bloopers Show or Candid Camera or, you know, later on, like the Jackass TV shows. Uh You know, it's essentially, uh, you know, it's it's all about the comedy. It's meant to generate laughter. So it's interesting to to, to think about that. Like this is the first crop of 10 films and they've already touched on uh, uh, some sort of narrative comedy.
0: A friend of mine in high school, I actually remember – Talked about this short film. He was yeah. talking about it, and he uh, he said that basically, film is mostly the same today, except now it would say "punked" at the end. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly, punked. Um, so from you know from there, they you know they would get into you know into shorts that were comedic, and they would later present the first newsreel and uh, some of the first documentaries. Uh, these covering the uh, the Leon Fire Department. And by 1886, they were sending crews out to capture footage from around the world. And they amassed thousands of films. So, you know, they were not only inventors, but they were also some of our first cinematographers.
0: I do think this is interesting. We're seeing with both Edison and the Lumiere brothers that in the 1890s, again, there wasn't yet this division between the, the, the technical side and the artistic side. They were like fully merged. You mm-hmm. know, you're, you're doing both because if you want to have an audience for this thing you invented, you've got to create media for it. Nobody else is doing that yet. Right. So uh I I one thing I wonder is about um what that divergence looks like over time. Like when does making films become an art and not something that's associated with the technical side of like inventing or maintaining equipment for making
1: films? Well, this is something that becomes difficult to nail down, right? Because even like these fir- first 10 films from the Lumiere brothers, you know, they're not just like crude demonstrations of uh of the technology. Like there is at least some art to them. Mhm. So, um, yeah, it, it would Definitely be – Definitely
0: in the sprinkler sprinkled.
1: Yeah. I mean like if you, if you have to – if you're asking the question like what is the first film that is made like for the joy of, of filmmaking, I don't know. Um, like it's – there's a lot, a lot of joy in the sprinkler sprinkled.
0: Well, I just wonder – there probably is an answer to this that somebody has posited before. But who was the first filmmaker who had nothing to do with making cameras or anything?
1: Ah, uh, well, that's – I think that's a question we'll have to come back to. Now uh, as for the Lumiere brothers you know they were they were true innovators and they were they were ahead of the curve on their invention and yet kind of like Edison was at least initially uh, they may not have really seen the full potential of what they were uh, they they were working with
0: well i think they were also still limited by their technology to like longer than the Edison films but still shorter than the films that would come later
1: right yeah, they they were they were limited by what they could do at the time, but but even then they are often quoted as having said, "quote The cinema is an invention without any future." Uh, <laughs> they didn't sell their camera to other filmmakers. Uh, now, part of it too, with with both the Lumiere brothers and Edison, is. They weren't, like, all in on films. Like, Edison had a lot of interests. Right. Uh, and then the Lumiere brothers were also impo- made important advancements in color photography. They had their, they had their whole uh, photographic business going. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not what like they were, like, clinging to this one invention or that they had all their eggs in this one basket. So perhaps we can, you know, forgive them for not having, you know, the, the clearest vision of, of where this technology was going. But as we said before, I mean, it's the danger of hindsight. Like it's easy to look back at this invention and and say, well, how – come on, Lumiere Brothers. How come you couldn't predict the the box office uh, success of uh, the Avengers Endgame based (laughs) on uh, this technology, based on the sprinkler sprinkled?
0: Well, I would have to think one reason they might not – yet have been able to predict that is that artists hadn't come along yet just pure artists who would take the craft of filmmaking to new heights i mean mm-hmm. one thing you have to consider now is that is is how crucial editing is to good visual storytelling right. on uh, on film and these early Things we're seeing, you know, the stuff made by uh, the Edison Labs and by the Lumiere Brothers. Um, I, I can't recall if the Lumiere Brothers had used editing yet. They may have employed editing, but if they did, it was certainly not to the extent that it would be employed by filmmakers later to, you know, really get the the best of of each angle and the best uh, the best performances out of a number of takes and to put things together in time, different times and places. Like that's how storytelling really takes off through the the visual medium of the motion picture.
1: Right. I mean, it's really it's almost like thinking about the difference between just marveling at the wonder of being able to, say, capture um, spoken language uh, in written words Mm -hmm. and comparing that in that to say the difference between just the wonder of watching footage of a horse running versus seeing an actually fully composed motion picture. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think that's part of it. Like we're still discussing examples of of, the, of, of motion pictures that are not truly telling stories yet and they're certainly not manipulating our our, our senses and our cognition to the level that, uh, that films ultimately would manipulate us. Right. But we're going to have to come back and discuss all that uh, in a future episode.
0: That's right. We're not done with
1: the motion picture yet and next time we got a murder mystery for you. That's right. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find them. Uh, And likewise, if you want to support this show, the best thing to do is make sure that you rate and review us and subscribe wherever you have the power to do so. So wherever you get your podcasts, find us, rate us, review us, and subscribe. Huge thanks to Scott
0: Benjamin for research assistance on this episode and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Nerd Wallet. Finance Marter.